Welcome, I'm your host Emily. And I'm your host Maya. And this is Stay Tuned, supporting transition age youth. This podcast is brought to you by the Transitions to Adulthood Center for Research at UMass Chan Medical School, Department of Psychiatry. This is in partnership with our research sponsor, the National Institute for Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. We're excited to be recording our third episode with Dr. Michelle Munson today. I'm also joined by our new co-host, Maya. So before we get into the show, I'd like to give Maya a chance to introduce herself. Hi, everybody. I am so excited to be a part of this podcast. I'm a research coordinator here at the center. I work on a couple of different projects, including Hype on Campus, the PASS study, and our Youth Advisory Board. I have a bachelor's degree from Clark University in psychology and a concentration in comparative race and ethnic studies. Prior to joining the center, I worked as a peer mentor for students living with mental health conditions, so I am passionate about all things mental health and transition age youth. Thanks, Maya. All right, and now to introduce our guest, Dr. Michelle Munson. Dr. Munson is a professor at the NYU Silver School of Social Work. She's also the director of the NYU Youth and Young Adult Mental Health Group, as well as a member of our Transitions to Adulthood Center for Research and our HYPE program here at UMass. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you both. It's an honor to be here. And and I'm also all about mental health and transition age youth. So excited to talk. All right. So without further ado, let's get into it. So as I mentioned, you're the director of the Youth and Young Adult Mental Health Group at NYU. Could you tell us more about that group and what you've learned from the young adults that you work with? Sure, sure. So, so that group at uh, NYU Silver, we're, we're at the Silver School of Social Work, um, really is a uh, dedicated group, I would say, of faculty, students on all levels, um, staff, many of whom are young adults themselves, who are dedicated to a variety of projects that are aiming to improve, I would say, you know, overall mental health and well-being of young people. And we engage in many different types of activities, uh, research and evaluation, trainings, um, and various other kinds of activities related to um, youth mental health. And as far as what we've learned from young adults, that's such a great question. And, you know, I almost want to say everything, <laughs> but specifically, I, I would say throughout this process, we've, you know, we've been doing this work for a number of years, the thrust of a lot of the actual intervention strategies that we use in our program um, were either evolved from young people's ideas or were adapted from young people's ideas and sort of partnering in the initial discussions around some of these strategies and then even around decisions of what to keep in a program on what to remove from a program also involved uh, young people. So our utilization, which um, I'll probably talk a little bit more about, of things like visual art of music in a variety of ways. These are things we learned directly from young adults. And then the only other thing I would say is, you know, from my years as a clinician, all the way to now as more of a researcher and advocate, I've learned a lot also about language and the importance and meaning of language for young people. And some of the work that we've done is really to try to understand the importance of how young people actually think about, talk about, translate 
these mental health diagnoses into their real world, into their real lives. And listening and learning from young people, it's been very profound that young people with the same diagnosis live, experience, talk about their experiences in such a wide variety of ways. So I guess those are a couple of things I would say that you know, we've learned along the way, but quite seriously, you know, we've, we've learned so much, so much from young people. That's great um, to hear about how you involve them in the research itself and how you involve your participants in the research and programs um, that you're working on. So something that I was interested in from what you said was mentioning um, like visual and creative arts and mm-hmm. I was wondering how do some of the young adults that you work with who have lived experience of mental health conditions engage in some of those more alternative methods of managing mental health symptoms that you mentioned? And why do you think they're interested in those methods over more traditional ones? That's a great question, Maya. I mean, I'll talk specifically about our programs, but I would also just more broadly say, I think young people these days increasingly we see evidence that they're using more expressive or alternative methods, at least in addition, right, to traditional ways to manage mental health. So regarding music, I think young people are increasingly using music in a variety of ways, creating music, creating beats, doing that either alone or in groups, listening to music, right, for a sort of soothing or regulating kind of um, impact. And then also, um, there was a great study in JAMA about the increase of popular music, including lyrical content around mental health concepts. And so I think young people, regardless of our programs, (laughs) they're just engaging in, in some of these expressive modalities more and more because there's more access to uh, mental health content, for example, in music, also uh, in visual art. um, I think creating images with um, specific directives that either peer or social work psychologist providers can give to young people allows them an opportunity to create images and talk about sometimes what might be difficult experiences in a more indirect way, as opposed to the more traditional talking, right? So I think it can be a powerful alternative vehicle, if you will, to sort of process some, you know, difficult experiences uh, that young people have. I would also say to your second question, the why, um, Maya, I think, you know, that that was one, one thing. I think it allows for a kind of an indirect, less threatening way to process. But I also think it's kind of simple in many ways. Um, you know, I started talking to young people in 2007 and eight about some of these questions. So years and years ago, and it was as simple sometimes as I like to use art and music because it's enjoyable. I mean, there's nothing profound about that, but can we make part of this process enjoyable or fun and pleasurable, right? And so I like to think of it as an ancillary component of our mental health that, you know, not to say that traditional talk therapy um, isn't effective. I think of it as an additional tool or vehicle that young people have taught me has particular relevance for them. So those would be a couple of, I think, the reasons why, if that makes sense. That definitely makes sense, um, especially the joy part, I think, really resonates with me. I think that's so important to 
create joy or engage in, in things that create joy in yourself um, as a way to cope and also just being able to use those methods to express themselves, especially when in some cases they may not be able to express themselves fully um, in other situations. So yeah, I think that's a really powerful answer. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I think it's great that you're working to make it more fun for young adults. So Michelle, I know that you've developed some intervention programs to help young adults get more oriented into the mental health system and figure out how they can be more involved in their own treatment plan, um, as well as providing some real world or in vivo practice for their goals and therapy. And these programs are called Just Do You and Cornerstone. I was wondering what kind of results or feedback have you received from these programs? Well, that's another great question. So let me just start with uh, Just Do You. So Just Do You is a brief um, just two modules. It's a brief program and it's conceptualized to be part of orientation or beginning a new experience in mental health treatment and really applies or utilizes some of these innovative communication modalities that I was just talking about, such as music and art, along with actually typical, more typical kinds of psychoeducation uh, modal modalities. And just as you said, the goal of Just Do You is really to prepare and orient and inspire young people to become more fully engaged. And some of uh, what we've learned or some of the feedback we've got, we, we have done multiple pilots um, with Just Do You. And we just finished a randomized trial, actually, enrolling young adults in Just Do You. And in that study, which we're, you know, we're just engaging in a lot of the analysis and dissemination, but a couple of the things we found um, were that the young people who actually received Just Do You versus those who did not receive Just Do You, they had significantly more positive beliefs about the larger treatment program. They also had lower levels of stigma. And they had higher scores on indicators of actually trusting their providers of these treatment programs um, three months later. So there were other outcomes that did not show significant differences between the treatment group and the control group, but those were some of the things that we found um, in that study. And then second, we also found that engagement in um, the program was related to higher scores on measure of what we call personal recovery, which is things about future orientation, goals, and, and things like that. And so, you know, those are some of the outcomes that we're currently disseminating and chewing on to think about kind of next steps with this program that we really conceptualize being part of what we would consider a traditional intake process or kind of beginning of, of a treatment program. Also generally in these pilots, Just Do You and some of these alternative strategies have, you know, feedback we've gotten from young people has predominantly been favorable um, just to some of these different kinds of strategies and ways to talk about, you know, for example, negative previous experiences with the system or providers where they didn't feel as much of a connection. So those are some of the, the, the things we've learned about Just Do You. The other program you mentioned where we do a lot of community-based, what we call in vivo, um, work with young people and their provider team is actually a 
is a is a treatment program called Cornerstone, whereas Just Do You is just an engagement program. And Cornerstone actually, um, I didn't develop. This was a program that was uh, developed in Detroit that I was involved in uh, the evaluation there. And then we brought it to Brooklyn to, um, you know, see how it would be accepted and implemented in a typical outpatient mental health clinic in New York City. And so that model is provides counseling, uh, peer mentorship. And then, as you said, this intense in vivo experience, which is really a bit different from typical clinic. Typical clinic, right, is your sort of 50-minute session with your provider in an office. And what Cornerstone pushed folks to think about, the provider team, which was a licensed clinician and a peer, was that a lot of the important work for young people can be really sort of amplified if you do it out in community where young people are. So a lot of the providers would do things like work with young people on feeling more comfortable on public transportation, as an example. So it got the providers out of the clinic and into the real world with young people. And in that, in that study, we really learned um, that, first of all, providing cornerstone in a typical outpatient clinic was feasible. That was a, a question. We, we weren't sure, first of all, whether we could recruit, hire, train um, mentors, and then whether we could have this team-based model that was taking the provider team into the community um, to work with young people. A couple of other things that we, we learned in that study also was really the importance of peer mentorship and that there was a lot of feedback. You said, you know, what feedback have you gotten from different members of the study about how positive the relationships were between the youth and their peer mentors? So those are a few things. And then I think as far as implementation, we really learned the importance of support in bringing in an innovative model like this into a typical clinic. It needs to have support from the top down, right, from upper level administration all the way down to providers for this kind of alternative model, um, bringing together a licensed clinician and a peer to work together to serve, which was also somewhat innovative. And then the importance of like training and supervision and continuing to support these teams um, in their provision. So we're still learning a lot with, with both of the interventions, but those are some of the things that, that so far we have found. That's amazing. I just want to take a second to thank you for listening to us as young people and working to tailor mental health treatment towards our needs. I think that's really valuable and not a lot of people are doing that, so. Well, and I appreciate you saying that because you know what, it takes time, Emily. Yeah. And it's also very humbling. I'm going to be very honest with you. You know, I always tell this story that I was out in one of the pilots of Just Do You. I wanted to utilize technology to teach CBT, right? And CBT, I believe in it. I think it's really important and it can, you know, it's shown to make such a big impact on different kinds of challenges. But in the original iteration of Just Do You, I was utilizing technology to teach CBT multiple sessions. 
and you know young people in our post we would have meetings with the young people after each um, sort of pilot session of an intervention uh, module and they would say we don't need to learn this more than one time like got it move on and so you know these things are humbling when you know you, you spend all this time reading and what do you think young people need and so on and so forth so i just give that one example but their you know voices are critical and their voices are why i think we have found some positive results because repeatedly i was hearing you know again i'm dating myself this is long ago but my friends and I, we, we listen to Mariah Carey. We listen to Kid Cudi. These are the things that allow us to then process different kinds of emotions. And so we wanted to build upon those things, right? And, and that didn't come from me, so. Wow, yeah, I think that's really amazing to hear. And part of the reason that we were so interested in talking to you is that um, clearly in looking through your research, it's clear that you do really value working with the participants, working with young adults. And it's not just sort of like a top-down process. It's iterative where they influence the work that you're doing and your work influences them. But I think it's so important to have that open sort of feedback loop because they are the experts, you know, on their own situation as a former peer mentor um, I've seen firsthand, you know, how positive that relationship can be. Yes. And so involving that work with a clinician as well, and then also hearing their feedback when they say, all right, I've had enough of the CBT. I get it. You know, I learned it. Let's yep. move on to something else. I think that's really great. Yeah, it's critical. I mean, it's, it's so important to, and, and I, again, I want to be very frank. It, it takes time, right? And we have to value the young people and actually adjust when they tell us something that we've conceptualized might not be as necessary as we think. It sounds like trust is, is really important in, in these relationships as well. And in these programs is getting young people to trust. And I think through that or through listening to them, you can build that trust. Um, so my next question is kind of related. Um, what are some of the reasons that you found that young adults decide not to engage in mental health care? And how do you and your interventions and programs seek to address these reasons and improve engagement and access? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think one that so many people, including your colleagues at UMass, you know, have been working on for, for a very long time. Um, and I think there's a couple of major areas that you can kind of categorize some of the things that get in the way of engaging in mental health care when it's needed. And one set of those things are what I consider the um, more individual level kinds of barriers. I always think about them as the cognitive and emotional factors. A lot of feelings can get in the way. A lot of our thoughts can get in the way, right? That are, by the way, based on, you know, valid experiences that have led to such thoughts and emotions. For, for example, something I hear a lot from young people is, you know, I don't want to go to these services because they don't work. I can get the same kind of support 
you know, from my neighbor or from, you know, some other outlet or emotions. I hear a lot, you know, I'm afraid fear and fear, by the way, we have found can be both a motivator and a deterrent. So sometimes experiencing fear can, can actually motivate. We have found young people to, to access services. So I think those kinds of emotions, also anxiety, right? Fear. I know th- th- those are related. Um, and then thoughts also, like you said a moment ago, you know, about what is this going to mean about me? sort of in that umbrella of stigma. What is it going to mean about me? What is society going to think of me? And then having to challenge and struggle with those thoughts we have about ourselves when we know that society is, you know, potentially going to think this about us, that about us, the next about us. Um, so, so those are very real barriers. And I'll come back in a moment to some of the things that we try to do to address them. But there's another set, I think, of really important things that can get in the way that we found in our research too. And that's about things more around once a young person has actually made a decision to go, they're willing to go to see a provider, okay? So they have that intention, if you will, to go. There's a whole nother set of barriers. Young people talk to me about, I wanna go, but there's a six month waiting list at my neighborhood clinic, that's real. Or I don't have the money is common, right? So cost factors, access factors. So even if a young person gets through and kind of like is able to get past that stigma or that lack of trust or that belief that services can't really do anything to help them, then there's this set of challenges. Also, you know, transportation, uh, finding the right time when I have the competing demands of actually having a job or all kinds of other great things in my life. So both of those things can be challenges, right? Am I making sense? Definitely. And I'm really glad that you touched on that point as well, because I think there are both internal and external challenges. And so even if you get over those internal barriers, there's a lot of external things that can still prevent people from getting access, like you mentioned, with insurance, with um, access. I used to work at a psychological clinic, and our wait list was 12 months long during the pandemic. And I think things have just gotten even harder because there's a lack of you know, mental health clinicians out there, and it can be hard to find them and to um, get, actually get into treatment once yep. somebody has made that decision. Exactly, exactly. So I think we as a community that cares about youth and young adult mental health, we have to be working on both of those uh, buckets, if you will. So some of the ways that we address this, um, let's start with the first bucket. I'm going to just talk about a couple of things we do. And really, this comes down to some research in the field of communication science and the importance of messaging. Right. And so to deal with things like stigma, to deal with things like mistrust, that, like I said a moment ago, there's valid reasons to have those concerns. Stigma is alive and real. Right. But we try to think about ways to provide messaging and communication that attracts young people, holds their attention, and potentially will 
allow them to feel less alone in some of these experiences while validating their real lived experiences. And so one of the things in our intervention programs that is a huge vehicle for addressing these is our mentors. Uh, we, we use the term recovery role models, uh, but these folks, when we hire and train them, for example, for Just Do You, we actually work on particular segments of their lived experience. So they're not hired just to share their lived experience overall. We actually talk with them about the modules and the intent behind our very brief program. And we work with them to develop structured content to share about, for example, what we know are those barriers. Can they share or develop a story, a narrative of their experiences about how they were able to um, get past stigma? trust a little bit more that they could disclose to a boyfriend or a girlfriend, talk about how they moved from complete mistrust of the mental health system towards a little bit of trust. And so we work with them and then they're able to um, really, it's their narrative, they're able to share those narratives in ways that we believe that social workers may have a less compelling voice than somebody who has lived it, um, has chewed on it themselves and dealt with it. And then in addition to those peers who are actually providing Just Do You, we also use technology and uh, narratives that come through through people they don't actually meet in person. So we use brief um, clips of folks that young people find attractive, celebrities talking about how they dealt with stigma. And then we have intentional discussions after showing these clips. But again, these intervention strategies were designed specifically to try to hit those barriers that, that, that your initial question you know, brought up. And then the other barriers, I think, um, you know, we have to think hard around um, policy, how to make cost go down, availability go up, think about ways that we can bring different kinds of mental health strategies, education, learning about different ways to cope into communities at low cost, um, you know, in low cost ways that are relevant to folks. And then I think we also have to really be thinking about um, you know, alternative strategies to the traditional clinic because of the wait lists. Like, what can we do in the meantime? Are there, are there apps? Are there, you know, different things that we can get into the hands of young people so that they can um, have some support, uh, for example, you know, until they can um, get an appointment with a, with a professional provider. Again, I think we have to be working on those things at, at, at the same time. Also time management, how to help young people. I mean, one of the things our team talks about, we don't want a young person to come to Cornerstone group, let's say in the evening or an appointment, if it's going to actually get in the way of them doing their job or get in the way of them spending time with a friend, right? We, we, we want to make sure to be supporting those alternative activities. So I think we have to think creatively about, you know, about both those things.
Definitely. And it's it's really great to know that you are working on all of these different creative strategies to manage and overcome those types of barriers. Yeah, those barriers are very real. And even here in Massachusetts, where there's seemingly an abundance of mental health workers, there is still that scarcity because of the pandemic. Um, those six month, 12 month wait lists, they're very real. Yes. And it's a lot worse in some communities where mental health resources aren't as accessible. Um, and I know that you do a lot of work with low resource communities and with minorities um, to help reduce that uh, the stigma surrounding it. So what are some ways that the mental health programs can become more accessible to marginalized young adults and people living in low resource communities? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a great question. I, I think the whole field, we together as a, as a youth and young adult mental health field, we need to continue to think of new strategies and ways to partner with communities um, to resolve some of these issues. We have to be creative. We have to be innovative. And back to our earlier point, we really have to listen um, to be thinking about ways that communities want to be partnering with us. Um, think about ways that young people actually are interested and willing to engage in addressing, you know, their emotions, their feelings. But, you know, I think a couple of promising ways to think about um, mental health services becoming you know, more accessible in low resource communities are schools and technology. These are a couple of things that come to my mind. You know, one promising avenue would be to try to um, increase legislatively and then through, you know, policy support within the settings where young people go in community, in schools where there could be um, different kinds of um, both educational programs around mental health, mental health literacy, and then also uh, reducing stigma, thinking about ways to help young people talk about these things, and then just mental health supports in schools, because we know that most you, you know, youth are, are attending schools all the way up to community college and college um, and university. And then I, I mentioned it a moment ago too, I think technology has a real potential. Not, I, again, I'm not trying to be a person who's arguing either or, I think it can be an important ancillary um, support. It can also, I think, be something to be used in partnership between you and a provider who you're working with um, to say, get support even between sessions. But I think it can also be uh, powerful as a, you know, standalone, um, um, either app to engage or community uh, mediated, uh, a, a sort of tech a community that's mediated or facilitated for for individuals, but you know, back to what I think you guys are all about at UMass, it has to come from collaboration, conversation over time. And I, I know I have had you know throughout my career times where I've done that better and worse, but we always have to be mindful you know, am I talking to the community? Is this what the community wants? You know, and uh, am I hearing the kinds of things that the strategy, the kinds of strategies or 
um, even programs that, could, that the community is even interested in. And I think it's through that kind of dialogue, you know, as a, as, as a researcher um, or staff at a research center, right? I think about it, I feel like I'm doing the best in my own work and our team's work if those conversations are happening at the beginning, at the very beginning not two years into a project, right? Um, and that folks are in the ideal situation, part of conceptualizing from the beginning. So I'd like to dive in a bit more to that concept of community partnership. Um, and we've talked about involving participants in your research, but could you tell us more about how you partner with the community and meaningful ways and how those partnerships have influenced your research? Yeah, um, you know, in, in hearing you ask that question, I often start out by thinking about community, like what, what is community? How are we defining community? Because in my mind, community certainly can mean geography, neighborhood. Community to me also can mean youth community. It can also mean mental health community or culture, right? Um, and so I'm gonna think about uh, this question or try to think about it in, in kind of uh, some of these different ways. But I think some of the ways that um, we've involved community is, um, so for example, in the mini pilots that we went through with the Just Do You program, leadership in different communities where we were going to go through a pilot were at the table talking with us from the beginning of these different studies as we iterated the program to its current um, state. And then throughout, for example, this last project we just did of the current iteration, it was five years of working together in four communities. And what did that mean? It meant that me and my team, so my, my postdocs, my doc students, my research doc, we're in the community. We're, we're not only, you know, trying to understand the program and the research project, but trying to understand the clinic, where it is, meet the leadership, meet the folks who are there. Then another thing that we worked very hard to maintain throughout that five-year effort was both um, periodical meetings on site in community to provide updates, provide what we're learning, get feedback, what are you hearing? Um, and then also we had learning collaboratives and the learning collaboratives, we would bring together the different communities. So just do you as in four neighborhoods to a common site where we would have a meal together and we would try to bring in some um, interesting program. So one time we brought in a young man who was running a hip hop based program in a Bronx high school. And he came in, all of our different communities were together. We had a meal together and he talked about, again, the use of music in his context with high school kids in one of the communities where we were working. And this provided us an opportunity to not just be going in and doing our research project, but to actually be collectively coming together, 
listening to his name was JC Hall, listening to his work, having small group conversations together around that kind of a modality, and then developing and thinking through what is it that we're doing in Just Do You, and how might we want to think about it moving forward. So, so those are some of the things, meetings in community, trying to be connected from the beginning, and then having these learning collaboratives where we're bringing folks together. That's great. I think it's so important to have that connection from the start so that it can inform your research all the way through. Um, and that's something that I've, I've loved as I've dived into more of your research is that um, it is very communicative with the community. And I've seen that as a common thread and that your research is not just research for research's sake, but to actually create a change and to create impact um, in the communities that you're serving. Yeah, as I said, you know, we we try to do that. We try to hold ourselves to that. It's, you know, it's easier said than done. Yeah, as we were doing our sort of background research on you, we noticed that a lot of your work centers around like the social and societal aspects of mental health, um, mm. as well as stigmatization. Uh, so what is one of the biggest misconceptions that you see about mental health and what do you wish people knew instead? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great question. <laughs> Seems to be so many myths, right, that, that we have to work to, to fight against. And I guess one that I think a lot about, um, be curious to hear what you guys think about too, is um, what I call the either or idea, or the, I could say, I guess, based on your question, the either or myth the misconception that, you know, we as human beings are either mentally ill or we're not mentally ill. And I guess I wish people knew that the reality for many of us human beings, it's much more complex. It's much more nuanced. Folks can have periods of time when they're having a lot of difficult symptoms, you know, or they're, they're just really experiencing difficulties, but that can be followed by periods of really being well, um, you know, and symptom-free for a very long time. And I think a myth that folks who are uninformed or who aren't exposed or who don't know anybody, right, who lives with a mental health challenge, they just think very us and them or these people have this thing. And I think it's a lot more complicated, um, a lot more nuanced. Does this make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, I do think there is a lot of that sort of othering of people with mental health conditions where in reality, it's a lot more common than we think. And, you know, it can have those kind of waves of feeling good and then struggling one day and then feeling better the next. And I think yeah. people don't fully realize that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a continuum. You know, I would, you know, I, I think you know, sort of like we're all on a continuum and it really isn't, you know, either or. So, and then I guess I, I would say one other thing I wish people knew since you're giving me the opportunity to say, I wish people knew, you know, the strength and the survivorship of people who live with mental health challenges and that a lot of folks who live with mental health challenges have survived adversities all kinds of adversities, by the way, right? And I think too often it's thought, oh, 
somebody with a mental illness is just not normal or, you know, something like this. But I wish people really, you know, had the opportunity to talk with folks and understand the resilience and the survive, survivorship of folks and what they have been through and fought through and survived. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I do. Yeah, a lot of people sort of focus on like the more negative aspects of mental health and how it can, you know, obviously it can bring a lot of struggle, but with that on the other side of that coin is resiliency and it really makes people a lot stronger and often more empathetic. And I do think that's an important part that not a lot of people are focusing on. Yeah, they missed that part, I think. Yeah. I would definitely agree um, as well too with your earlier statement. I think it does, it can come in waves and flare-ups and um, people don't realize they think of it more as as like a a short-term or something that is very othering and that you're always in that other category and there's no one, it's it's not categories, it's really like a a flow. Um, And as well, I, I do think with those waves and learning how to manage those symptoms at each time can come a lot of strength from how you learn through that process. Um, Absolutely. And gaining knowledge more about yourself and about other people. And like Emily said, gaining empathy for other people who also live with mental health conditions, um, I think is, is so important. That's an important point, Maya. I'm so glad you said that. And I think too, um, one of the other myths that comes to my mind um, is the sort of stereotype or myth around violence and mental health and that people who have mental health conditions, who are living with mental health conditions are violent. Um, I know this is something you've thought about um, because in researching you, we read an article that you published back in 2016 titled Mental Illness, The Last Acceptable Stereotype. And that article discusses the stereotype that people with serious mental health conditions are violent and dangerous. Um, This is definitely a stereotype that persists to this day. And in particular, this past week, almost six years later, uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott blamed the recent Valde shootings on a mental health challenge, even though the shooter didn't have a diagnosed mental health condition and there's no evidence that um, that the shooter deals with any sort of mental health condition. So clearly the stigma around violence and mental health uh, still persists. So how do you think these sorts of stereotypes impact young adults' um, impressions of themselves, impacts their access to and you know, the utilization of mental health care when they see headlines um, like this in the news? Hmm. Hmm. Wow. So important. And, and what a tragedy, um, for sure. I, I think that stereotypes... Um, as you said about individuals with mental health challenges, um, specifically blaming mass shootings on mental illness can impact young people's willingness to reach out, uh, willingness to reach out and seek help for difficult feelings um, that they're having, particularly because of those stereotypes and because of, of perhaps being feared, I mean, fearing that they will be judged um, in those kinds of ways or, or labeled in kind of this, this um, um, way. I also think, you know, 
headline, these kinds of headlines are particularly troubling. Um, as I wrote in that 2016 piece um, that, that you looked at, data suggests that individuals with mental health conditions are more likely to hurt themselves than others and that only a small percentage of, of um, firearm deaths have been found to be related to mental illness. And I guess the, the last point I would say about this is importantly, as you pointed out in Ivaldi, in the shooter didn't have a diagnosed mental health condition, right? And people are looking for answers to why, right? When these tragedies occur, which makes complete sense. You know, but it's important, I think, to recognize that experiencing bullying, isolation, even intense emotion, like anger, other intense emotions does not necessarily mean that somebody has a mental health condition. And so I, I think, you know, how does that impact young adults' utilization of mental health care? I, I think it can impact them in a, in a number of ways, but one of the ways that I think about a lot and worry about a lot is that what I said a moment ago, fear of being judged and fear of, you know, if this is the stereotype that's out there, right, and it's, it's an easy one to hold, then what is that going to mean about me if I actually go get help for you know, these difficult thoughts I'm having, these difficult emotions I'm having, or these difficult interactions I'm having with my friend, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my parents, right? And so um, I know there's a lot of um, effort right now. Uh, in, in fact, yesterday I was listening to the New York Times had a session on really talking about this, this very issue as well um, of folks trying to... Um, address these stereotypes and really talk about the data around this um, stereotype and around um, this misconception, if you will. You brought up a really good point about how we do tend to try to make sense of why these tragedies are happening and like what caused them. And unfortunately, that does often tend to fall into the mental health category. Um, and I think a lot of that is due to the stigmatization and just the lack of resources and knowledge about mental health in our society. So that's definitely something that hopefully with your work and everything that you're doing can help steer us in a better direction. Thank you. And, and I, as I said, I think we really have to work as a community, you know, including the two of you, Maya and Emily, <laughs> who I get to meet today. And also all of our good colleagues, I think, in the health field who really study firearms and, and are, you know, thinking about ways to uh, create new policy, policies um, so that they're more, you know, difficult to access, like red flag um, legislation and things, because um, I think we have to get at this, at, you know, at both angles. That's a really good point. I think sometimes using mental health sort of as the scapegoat can also uh, be something that people use to direct attention away from those other sorts of policies like um, gun control. And while mental health is definitely important, um, access to firearms and controlling that access would not only help these situations, but also help um, people with mental health conditions who are more likely to harm themselves with a firearm. Absolutely. Recent studies are showing that. Absolutely.
Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Um, we really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us and just all of the great work that you're doing for our community and for mental health in general. You are so welcome. It was really fun. I like to meet, you know, young, up and coming um, folks dedicated to this field and really genuinely enjoy, um, have enjoyed the conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much um, for talking with us today. If you would like to contact us, you can email us at staytuned at umassmed.edu and check out the Transitions ACR website at umassmed.edu forward slash transitions ACR. Thanks for being here and be sure to stay tuned for next time.